0: Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Roche. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Chef Educator Podcast, proud member of the Food Media Network. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. Today's episode is titled Conducting a Demonstration, which is so important in what we all do as Chef Educators. Now, this topic is covered pretty heavy in chapter 11 of my book titled Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips. And I'm going to leave a link to it in the show notes as well as the episode's description if you want to get more information. But I've pulled specific information from that chapter on conducting a demonstration that I want to share with you today because I've gotten a lot of email and questions about that. So let's talk about it. Now, while there are a number of instructional strategies and methods used to help learners achieve cognitive objectives such as lectures discussions case studies you know a lot of the things we've talked about in past episodes of this podcast the demonstration method is the primary means by which learners receive instruction related to psychomotor skills or psychomotor objectives and that is because demonstrations are an instructional method in which teachers or instructors show, and explain content to learners. Demonstrations are a great way to help our students understand concepts and principles related to pretty much any subject. I mean, it can be work with science, math, music, and of course, culinary and hospitality. Really, any other subject that requires a skill to be learned. For example, in our case, think about cutting a chicken or doing vegetable knife cuts or setting a table or opening a bottle of wine. I mean, there's just so much or so many things that are great for demonstrating. Now, since students will eventually be required to do that which is being demonstrated, showing is therefore the principal component of the demonstration method. You know, we're giving them a demo. We're showing them what we want them to eventually do. However, it also involves telling, questioning, and application while we are showing. And each of these components of the demonstration method is important to learning and understanding. Now, in the development of the skill that we are showing the students, the learners must not only understand the steps, but also the purpose of each step as well as the interrelationship among the steps that determine the sequence okay so for example if the skill was to say um, you know able to cut a carrot into small dices we would not only show the steps but we would explain the purpose of the steps and their interrelationship as to why we do one before the other for example we would most likely start by demoing the washing and peeling of the carrot, which would come before the squaring off of the carrot or the slicing of the carrot into the planks or eventually the sticks and then the dices because, you know, certain things have to come first. We would also need to explain how to keep the cuts even and straight and why a sharp knife is important and what to do with the trimmings and why the trimming should be saved, etc., etc., etc. So there's other information built in there when we're doing these demos. Now, when skill development is the desired outcome, practice must also be included as a major component of this demonstration method. You know, just by showing them and that's it, not really going to do very good. You know, it's not going to do, do the student the best justice, right? They need to then take what they've learned or saw or watched and try it themselves. So, after the students know the steps and have seen the steps performed in the proper sequence by the instructor, students must then be guided through an initial performance themselves correctly and successfully with personalized feedback as needed. So, let's go into the steps. So, planning a demonstration. We all know that careful planning is essential to effective instruction, and that is true in conducting a demonstration as well. However, in my case, I've seen this, some instructors make the mistake of preparing less for a demonstration than they would for other instructional methods. And I have found this to be especially true with instructors who possess a high degree of skill in the process to be demonstrated. I mean, I guess they figured they have done it numerous times and maybe they're overconfident, But what they fail to realize is that a demonstration of a task or a skill for others is different than just doing the task or skill for ourselves. Therefore, instructors must identify the steps of the procedure and the physical movements involved. And it is essential that we as instructors write down these steps because this forces us to think through the process from beginning to end. And these same written steps then become the basis of an instructional sheet that can be passed out and given to the students, either during or after the demo, to be used as a reference guide. Now, some tasks or operations to be performed may need to be taught with two or more separate demonstrations. So we have to kind of think it through. We don't want to overcomplicate it, right? just makes it confusing. For example, if you're doing a demo on the topic of, say, proper saute techniques, and we're going to be using um, a boneless skinless chicken breast as the food item to visually show this saute technique, we wouldn't want to cloud the demo or overcomplicate it by first showing how to break down a chicken to get the boneless skinless chicken breast or how to peel and mince the garlic or the shallots that will be used in the pan sauce And that is if we're even going to be showing how to create a pan sauce with the sautéed item in this demo. You see, this would all most likely be separate demos, right? We would show a different demonstration on chicken fabrication. We would show a different demonstration on how to cut garlic or how to, do onions and shallots, so herbs, something else, and then we kind of put them together. But we don't want to complicate it. We want them concentrating on what we're showing them. In that case, the saute method, how to you know, get the proper uh, heat of the pan, what fat to use, presentation side down. Now, the decisions, what you're going to do is really up to you. I mean, the decision that you as the teacher or instructor will need to make on what to include in the demo, what to actually show or to demo depends on a variety of factors, such as who are your students? What's their background? Um, What is the content or the subject matter? The time you have available and are the learners ready? We call that the learner readiness. I mean, some things you wouldn't show to, say, a freshman, which you may show to a senior or an upperclassman or someone that's in more of an advanced class. For example, regarding time, a general rule of thumb is that a demonstration should not exceed 15 to 20 minutes. However, instructors must consider the variables during the planning process when determining an appropriate length of their demo and the content to include. But usually, and we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, 15 to 20 minutes. Now, think about what you're going to be using, the tools, the materials, the equipment. It's essential that all of these items, the tools, materials, equipment, are available prior to a demonstration. Too frequently, and I saw this as a department chair, instructors find it necessary to go send a student for a needed tool or a piece of equipment during the middle of the demonstration. I've seen this doing observations. You know, they would be like, oh, uh, could someone go grab me a spoon or uh, "Oh, go get me another sheet pan because they didn't think it through. And this often occurs when st- instructors do not take the time to rehearse the demonstration. They didn't plan. They didn't think it through. These types of unnecessary interruptions are distracting and they diminish the effectiveness of a demonstration. You know, think about it as your mise en place. Now, a list of items needed should be part of your written lesson plan. You should have a lesson plan or a lab lesson plan, right? And we talked about this in previous episodes. And on page 138 of my book, Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, for those that have it, I show a lab lesson plan. It's an example. It includes a list of items that an instructor might need for a demo on deep frying. Deep frying is an example I use. So you want to write that out. And a lot of times I write it out and if I have a chef of the day, you know, one of my students that's chef of the day, I hand that to them here, set up my demo and I'll give them that list and they know all the ingredients I need, what pans, what equipment, what products. Sometimes I'll even enlist them in helping me do the demo. And I'll talk about that in a little bit when I talk about having an assistant. So, tools and equipment also should be arranged on your demo table so that they do not draw attention away from the process or the concept to be learned. One, they shouldn't be in the front, so they're blocking a view, obviously, but also, you don't want them to be distracting. If the students are paying too much time looking at a, like a pasta maker or a sausage stuffer or something, they're not paying attention to what you're showing, then that's a distraction. Now, if they're familiar tools and equipment that's fine. You know Your cutting board, your knives, whatever that is, that's no problem. However, if you have a particularly interesting piece of equipment or instructional aid or something that you're going to be showing could even be the product themselves, I would suggest you only bring that into view when it is needed. You know, Keep it off to the side, keep it hidden, maybe put a towel over it or keep it into a, into a refrigerator or something. At the last minute, you just reach down underneath your low boy there and you pick it up and you show it to him because the students will be talking about it and they won't be paying attention to what you're showing. Now, sometimes you might even have a special piece of equipment or a product that you might use to set up a surprise to learners and highlight an important lesson of the uh, of the uh, element of the lesson. So you might have something that you keep off to the side, like, you know, oh, here it is. Like maybe you're talking about crayfish or or shellfish or crustaceans or something along those lines. And then the last minute you're talking about demos and you might have shrimp and some things that the students have seen on your bench. And then at the last minute, you bring out that live lobster and they're like, whoa, and then you can talk about lobsters and difference between northern lobster, southern lobster, whatever your demo happens to be. But again, it's well planned out. Now, in preparing for a demonstration, instructors should also go through the physical performance, work the problem, manipulate the equipment. And this is to ensure that there are no awkward gaps or mistakes. Like if you're going to show a piece of equipment, you should know how that piece of equipment works, how to handle it, how to set it up. But if not, practice on the side. I remember one time when I was making my first demo on fresh mozzarella. I had to have another instructor show me. I did a little class on the side just before I went in and talked to him because, you know, are you making it from scratch? Are you making it from, you know, the, the block, the raw curds? You now, how is that? Maybe something you're not familiar with to so get someone to show you so that you feel comfortable when you are in front of the students and teaching that. Now, while learners should recognize that instructors will have a high degree of skill in the subject they're demoing, hopefully, the demonstration should not be used to showcase the instructor's ability. It's not your time to be bragging and showing off for your students. It's not about your ego. It's about teaching. And usually that means slowing it way, way down. So this may be a problem. Instructor gets up there, they think they're on stage, they got the spotlight on them, right? And they're up there doing the demo as fast as they can. Wow, they're trying to awe them. But that doesn't help the audience, the student, the learner understand what you're doing and breaking it down. Now, after the demonstration has been presented slowly and carefully, an instructor may wish to repeat the performance steps, you know, maybe at another time at the normal speed in order to set a Kind of a standard of performance for the students the learners. An example would be honing a knife. You know, one of our first classes that we have for a lot of the freshmen, our first-year students, is to show how to sharpen knives. We don't want to take the steel and our knife and, you know, do it really fast. We're really comfortable with that. If you show that right away, students try to emulate that and they end up cutting their thumb or hitting their arms. So usually we tell them, you know, put the ground, the tip into the board and slice down or slice it away from you at a 20 degree angle. And then eventually we will show them how we do it really fast, but it's not a time to show off that what we can do. It's about slowing it down so the students understand it Then eventually or gradually they'll get the speed. So let's talk about timing of demos because that's a big thing too, because it's, it's no set rule for this. But it is important, the timing of a demonstration. I mean, it's easy to have a demonstration ready for a scheduled point in time. It's difficult, however, to have all learners in the group of the class ready for a demonstration at that time. So sometimes we would do the demonstration at the beginning of class. We have everybody's attention. We maybe just lectured on the topic and now we're going to show it. Other times, it doesn't really make sense because the students don't really need that information at that time. So then we may do it during class, right? Like Students are doing things and then we'll say, demo, everybody come up here. Or maybe just a certain group, come up here. I want to show you how to do this particular thing. And then I'll show other groups or other parts of the class at a different time. So, you know, one approach is to give the demonstration to the entire class whenever few of the advanced learners need to perform the operations. They get to the point where, okay, this group is ready to trust chickens. You'd say, okay, everybody come on up and we're going to trust the chicken, even though other groups may not be at that point. Later, individual or small group demonstrations can be given as needed. Now, this may not seem like a wise use of class time. However, it provides an opportunity for individual instruction. Sometimes you're like, no, I got to do it all at once. But I found like maybe I have a group deep frying, another group grilling, another group working on saute. I probably don't want to give the demonstration on grilling you know how to get crosshatch marks or something along those lines to everybody because the other groups may not be doing that until tomorrow or a different time in the lab. So they don't really care about it at that point and it's not really going to resonate with them. So I may just show that to the grilling group. And then the next day when the group switch, I may show that again, but to the different groups. So you got to think about when is the best optimal time to show that skill. So I probably maybe lectured about it, and then I'm just going to show it to the specific groups that need it. And I may have handout sheets too that let them know so they can refer back to it. So it's about um, just-in-time teaching, I guess. But as a general rule, the knowledge content related to the task to be demonstrated should be taught prior to the demonstration itself. That's not the first time they're hearing about it. They should have already had a lecture on that or a signed reading on that, or we had handouts on that. So, then when it comes to it, now it's really just about the details, right? It shouldn't be the first time they're understanding. But caution must be exercised by you, the instructor, the teacher, to avoid speaking too much during the demonstration. Because learners are more interested in seeing an instructor perform the process than in listening. And that's what we want them to be focused on, what I'm doing. The listening part already happened, right? Probably at the lecture, or probably during the reading. When learners need to understand a substantial body of information about the subject in order to benefit from the demonstration, well, that information should be given prior to the demonstration, right? It makes sense. That's not, we don't combine lectures and demonstrations. It really doesn't work that much. It's information overload for the most part. Now, when conducting the demonstration, planning and preparing for an effective demonstration is vitally important. Now, though there may be several acceptable procedures, it's important to limit a demonstration to one procedure at a time. You know, Don't try to combine a bunch because it just confuses the students. You better to separate them into different demos, but you know, sometimes like trussing, it makes sense to say, I'm gonna show you one way, we'll call this method one or A, and then I'm gonna show method B or two, doing it this way. So you really separate them so they don't blend together and confuse the student. You know, that changing from one procedure to another during a demonstration, as I just mentioned, can be confusing. So you really have to have that clear separation of them. Okay, that one's done. Now I'm going on to this next one. So they know, because sometimes they're not paying attention or they tune out. But these decisions on what to show and what to talk about, again, should be made during the planning process. You're going to write all that out. It's not off the cuff when you're up there doing your demo. Now Let's talk about the physical setting. Now, since a critical component of the demonstration method is showing, the demonstration obviously must be seen. Now, how are you going to arrange the learners so that they can see and hear you clearly? And this is often neglected because we're looking at it from our perspective. But if we step out and look at it from the student's perspective, can they see? Is there something in the way it's blocking? Is there other students standing in front of them? Is it too crowded? Now you sometimes you can arrange chairs in a semi circle semicircle. It can meet the requirements, maybe have people stand behind those that are sitting. However, you need to make sure that, you know, you've looked at, you've considered at, considered different points of view, you've looked at it from different points of view, if you've thought about it, how are they going to see? You know, do you have bleacher seating? Um, do you have, you know, tiered seating? Um and when demonstrating, it's necessary to prevent learners from obscuring the views of others. So you, some people put masking tape or chalk on the floor and say, don't come closer than this so that I can't come right up on the table. Other times you want them up really close. Again, the first row of learners seated in chairs, second row standing behind them sometimes works. Again, how many people do you have in your class? And also you can have the old style hanging demo mirrors. Sometimes they help, you know, so the people in the back can just look up at the mirror or more modern is the, the camera. filming the demo, projecting the demo to a monitor or a TV, those can also be helpful for people in the back to be able to see. Now, the physical setting in which the demonstration is conducted is of such importance that it warrants special attention during that planning process, as well as attention during the actual demonstration. You know, it's not only in advance, but while you're doing it, you can say, can everybody see, can everybody hear me? Uh, and look around, see if you see someone that's maybe shorter in the back. Say, hey, why don't you come more to the front so you can see this? I want you to be able to take a look at this. It's also important to think about other distractions to keep them to a minimum. Noises from other classes, from out in the hallway, the refrigeration, you know, the compressors and the reach-ins and stuff. They always make noise. So you really have to project your voice. Um, students from other classes walking in to borrow something or to talk to you—that's sometimes the worst. So, obviously, in schools, we always instruct our students: go down and see this other chef and see if they have an extra onion or something. But if they're doing the demo, do not disturb. Wait till they're finished. So we always instruct them. But some instructors put signs on their doors: demo in process, do not come in. Lecturing. You also want to think about comfort factors, temperature and light. Can they see? Is it cool? Is it too hot? know, we want to consider those. I mean, we all know if it's too warm, students will fall asleep, right? So, we want to think about that as much as we can control it. Now, the central focus of a demonstration is showing each of the steps involved in the procedure being demonstrated. Therefore, it's important that the telling portion of the demonstration be kept to a minimum and carried out in an efficient manner. It's also important to include small elements of information that make the steps meaningful and contribute to learner understanding. As an example, let's go back to dicing a carrot. I may talk about the importance of grounding the tip of your knife into the cutting board before making a slice in order to help steady the blade and make an even cut. You know, because that's kind of an element that's important. It's and It's a small element and it's something I can show. However, I wouldn't talk about Oh, I don't know, the pros and cons of organic carrots compared to non-organic produce, or different types of chef knives that are available out there in the marketplace today. You know, those are distracting. They're not really appropriate for that time of that demo. Maybe somewhere else we talk about those. And as I mentioned, demonstrations often last way too long, and learners are giving too much information before having a chance to perform the steps of the procedure themselves. As mentioned, demonstrations should seldom exceed 15 to 20 minutes, even for mature learners. If the demonstration is longer, learners may not retain what they learn. It's often better to break up the process into different demos and do two, say, 15-minute demos rather than one 30-minute demo. We have to think about students in their learning. We want to build those neural pathways and have them retain the information. Okay, at this halfway point in the episode, I would like to take this time to thank you as an important part of the success of this podcast. As the host, I appreciate your listenership, your comments, your engagement, and your financial support. You may not realize that it takes a lot of resources and funding to produce this show week after week and season after season, including the out-of-pocket expenses of website costs, hosting platform fees, post-production editing, equipment updates, domain names, and on and on. And there are numerous ways you can help support the show and defray some of these costs. And it doesn't have to be a lot either. Because we have strength in numbers, with the hundreds of you that subscribe and follow this show, whatever you can contribute gets added in to all the other donations, and together we have enough to keep the show up and running. So, if you enjoy this podcast and want to ensure its continuation and success, please consider helping it out today. Individuals can donate in one of two ways. The first is through Patreon at www.patreon, that's P A T R E O N, Patreon.com slash Dr. Professor Chef. Go to that link and you can find out all of the different ways that you can support the show. And we will be adding more tiers and more benefits over the next couple of weeks. The second way you can support the show is through the Buy Me a Cup of Coffee website at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Chef Roach. As mentioned, we truly appreciate any amount that you can afford. Even a few dollars a month helps us out with the hosting, purchasing, creation, and production of our episodes and shows that we produce and give away for free. And if you have a company or business, you can also help out by advertising or sponsoring an episode or even the full podcast. This is super cheap to do, and you'll be surprised at how economical it can be. Okay, and all of these links will be put into the show notes section of this episode, so you can go there to check them out, and I'll also include a lot of others that I hope you'll check out as well, and share these with others that you know. Again, thank you for all that you do. We truly appreciate your listenership and support. Okay, now back to the show. Now, safety is a vital part of a demonstration as well. When teaching the steps of a procedure, it's important to emphasize safety and as it relates to each step. This helps the learners remember the safety precautions at the right times. No, you don't wanna have long discussions about safety rules, that's not often very helpful. But obviously, certain safety instructions may be the subject of that demonstration, but others you need to do it as a separate demonstration or a separate lecture or a separate discussion. So think about it during the planning stages, is what you're going to talk about appropriate at that point in time? Generally speaking, safe work habits can best be taught along with the steps in the procedure. For example, while fabricating the carrots into dices, I might mention the wash-peel-wash rule, or say the use of gloves for ready-to-eat foods. Those are appropriate at the time. But I wouldn't go into, say, salmonella or E. coli and their relationships with fresh produce. It's not appropriate. It's going to be distract. So I'd use that as a separate time or, you know, separate lecture, separate discussion. Now, the basic theory of a subject, which may take a considerable amount of time to teach and learn, should be the topic of a separate lesson. So think about that when you're planning. But those smaller elements of informational content that can be included in a demonstration, if they apply naturally and contribute to the learning, then they should be in there. Now, another thing we think about is engaging the students. It's important in any type of group instruction that an instructor be sensitive, right? To maintaining good eye contact with the students or the learners and engaging them in what you're doing You're not doing this, you know, by yourself, you have an audience, but this can be... Challenging to do sometimes while you're doing a demo because you know, your requires attention to the tools, to the materials, to what you're doing, you know, to the equipment. But you must also remember to periodically stop and look at the learners in order to judge their reactions. Are you going too fast, too slow? Are they getting it? Do they have questions? And that's another thing provide them with the opportunity to ask or respond to questions that you ask. And maybe to repeat parts of the demonstration, or whatever else is necessary to ensure understanding. Right? Maybe they need to say, could you do that again? And then you could show it to them if it's applicable. I find that periodic pausing is the best way to accomplish, you know, this engaging with the students and to take time to have eye contact. And it's also a great way to keep me from moving through the demonstration too rapidly. It slows me down because, you know, as chefs, we may have done something a hundred times, a thousand times. So it's very easy to us, but we've got to put ourselves in the student's point of view or the student's shoes that this is the first time they're seeing this and they're already apprehensive and probably nervous. So you really want to go slow and it's almost like, screw excruciatingly slow. Like, oh my, I don't know if I can do this, this slow, this task, but we have to. We have to show it. We have to stop halfway. We have to talk about it. We have to see if there's questions. So slowing it down, engaging with the students. In other words, build pauses into your lesson plan. After each part or major step of a demonstration, we should allow time for questions. Now, that doesn't mean that the students will ask questions, right? We all know that. You know, they're going to refrain from asking questions for lots of reasons, including the fact they may not even know how to ask the questions they have in mind. You know, they they don't know why they're confused, right? They know they are confused, but they don't know why. Maybe they just need you to slow down a minute so they can process what they just saw and catch up. You know, you're getting too far ahead of them. Maybe they missed a step because they zoned out or they were talking and that is causing the confusion. Either way, we want to build in pauses and then ask questions and do like formative assessment to make sure everyone is on board and is understanding what we are doing. We don't want to get all the way to the end of the demo and find out that nobody got any of that. They're all confused. Then it becomes a waste. Now, students may also hesitate to ask questions because they're afraid of appearing foolish, right? In front of their peers happens a lot. So sometimes a stimulating question from you, the instructor, will encourage questions from the learners. For example, regarding the carrots, I might say as I'm cutting carrots, especially if there's a lull in the demo and I'm doing something, I might ask, well, what are the two main reasons we do precision knife cuts? You know, and hopefully it's something we've already talked about in the lecture and it can reinforce that and make someone can bring it up, oh, appearance or even cooking or something like that. And I can get a discussion going on that. So I'm asking questions and I'm getting them to ask and maybe they don't know. Experience will also help you anticipate some questions that may have been asked um, in the past, right? Because you're going to recognize points in the demo or lesson that may be difficult to understand. And those are the points where questions in the past have been asked. So you're going to know, okay, at this point, they're going to ask this question because it's been asked before or some version of it. So you're prepared. And if they don't, you could formulate that into a question to ask them back at them. Why am I doing it this way? Why wouldn't I do it this way? The big takeaway here is that we should never assume that a lack of questions from our students means that they don't have any. An effective teacher, which is what we are, we need to ask questions to ensure that the demonstration has been understood as well as to emphasize key points of the procedure. Good questioning techniques not only allow for pauses in the demo, which provides time for the learner to process, um, process what they're seeing and formulate responses, but also time to ask questions on key points and safety procedures during the demonstration. Now, sometimes we need some aids, instructional aids, when we are doing something, right? In the classroom, we have them all the time, right? We have whiteboards, we have videos, we have maybe handouts. Well, sometimes they're appropriate in a demo as well. You know, usually when we're using the actual equipment, the tools and the materials, we don't need them because those are the aids, right? We're showing how to uh, put the pasta machine together. We're showing how to set up the mandolin, right? So we don't need them. However, there is demonstrations that we're doing that could be made more effective with the combination of not only the using the equipment, but some special instructional aids that may be used to show the relationship of small or hidden parts of the equipment to enlarge small parts to emphasize you know, incorrect procedures or something like that, that we couldn't show, right? We can't show fire, right? or an oil fire. Maybe we don't want to show that when we're doing saute, but we want to show that you know it can get a flash point from oil. So maybe that's where we show a handout or we have a picture of that in the background. But also as valuable as instructor demonstrations are, We need to use media sometimes from the internet or other sources to help explain things that are too difficult to see or to show maybe intrinsic movements that we can't see with the naked eye. For example, when I demonstrate room making, I may want to bolster this demonstration with pictures or videos of maybe the starch cells being coated with and absorbing some of the fat, which later will prevent those same cells from clumping together and creating lumps. So when I make the white roux or the blonde roux or brown roux, you know, they may be asking why I'm saying, well, the oil is coating those fat, those uh, starch granules, but I can't really show that. So if I had a picture, they could see that. And then maybe when they hit the liquid, how it stops them from clumping. Again, it's a detail I cannot demonstrate or cannot be seen by the naked eye and it may bolster or help. So again, when you're doing your lesson plans, your lab lesson plans, these are some things you may want to say, well, how can I help show this without being a distraction? Where can I help the students understand? And those are where you bring these aids in. Sometimes it also can be expensive or cost prohibitive, as well as wasteful to demonstrate with real materials. So instructors may find it wise to perform demonstrations with less expensive or alternative materials. I mean, you see this all the time with architects, right? Architectural design instructors. They'll often use cardboard or even those popsicle sticks for demonstrating layout and construction. You know, they're not gonna go build a house, that's later on, but they'll use some smaller scale. But in culinary, we can do the same. For example, when learning to saute and you'll know, flip food, I often have the students practice with dry cold beans or rice, dry rice, so that they can get the flipping action or the motion down pat right before they transition to real hot food, right? So if they drop it, it spills, they're not having to think about hot and being on top of a stove. They can just stand off and flip those beans and if they bounce out, they can just pick them up and we're gonna throw them away anyway. It's not very expensive to have those or maybe I save them and they're only used for this activity and I keep them in a little bin and they're never for you know edible purposes. And then when they get to that, I may transition to food, but I'm probably not going to go right into something very expensive. They're not going to be doing shrimp. Maybe I start out with eggs, over easy eggs, right? Again, now they've got a hot food. They have more elements they have to, or factors they have to control. It's a little bit more difficult than the beans or the rice, but at the same time, an egg is pretty much, you know, know, pretty inexpensive. And, you know, if they burn it or they drop it, it's not really a big deal. Same thing when you do meats, right? You got to teach trimming and seaming and portioning out meat and learning dexterity and hand-eye coordination. Well, you could do that by starting out with, you know, a chuck shoulder or a Boston butt before we move on to more expensive, you know, tenderloins, right? A strip loins, right? so we can kind of keep it the same skill still being learned, but it makes it a little bit more expensive or not cost prohibitive. So let's talk about an assistant. Sometimes having an assistant helps. You know, depending on the type of equipment being used in the demonstration and the nature of the subject matter, assistance may be helpful. Maybe you need another instructor or an advanced learner, you know, someone that may be brought in to help with the demonstration. You know, variety could be added to the demonstration that way. They see somebody different. You brought in an outside expert or a guest speaker who's particularly skilled uh, at that part of the lesson. And it helps create desirable atmosphere of the instructors and the learners working together. In the past, sushi. You know, I've had students that work actually in a sushi restaurant. So when we're doing sushi in class, I'll call them up. They love it. They get a chance to be, you know, center stage and they get to show off their skills. And they're probably better at it than me. They do it every day. So let them do it. Or, you know, sometimes I've even brought in experts from the industry, a sushi chef from a restaurant as a guest speaker, and he's going to do a demo or she's going to do a demo. I also had a German chef one time who grew up making Spetzel. So when I'm doing that in my international cuisine class, why not have them come in? He can come in and ask him to be a guest. He gets to you know interact with different students than he may happen to have in the past because he was a pastry chef. And he gets to tell stories about making it with his grandmother and growing up with it. Ice carving was another example. I used to always bring in professional ice carvers. I can carve ice, but not anything like a professional. So I would have them come in and do the demos. So the use of an assistant or assistants may also make demonstrations more effective when you can't do something. As I mentioned, maybe you don't have the skill or for a physical reason or other reason, you can't do it. You don't want to do it. You're unable to do it, right? You don't want to actually do that. So that's a great time to bring someone else in. Then you can step back. Right? You're free to observe with your students, with the learners from the looking point of view. And you can be like a facilitator. You can talk about, you can comment on what's happening. You point out key factors of the demo, the procedures while the assistant or the guest is demonstrating it. This is a positive thing. And should we not be seen as anything to do with your ego because you're learning with your students and you're explaining it because you have the expertise. I mean, a common example of this strategy is seen with athletes all the time where the head coach may no longer have the coordination and the stamina to demonstrate a technique, say like a tackling technique for football or a swinging the bat, hitting a, a certain thing the way another student's, but they can analyze and highlight them as they're being demonstrated by another athlete or an assistant coach. So this is the same type of role that we would take as instructors. We step back, let someone else do it, but we talk about it while it's happening. Now, I want to talk about following up because it's not just the demo. That's important, but it's just as important now that the students practice. So, after a demonstration has been carefully planned and conducted, the application step must occur. They need to apply what they've learned, the application of the learning. This step provides for learning by doing as the students attempt to apply the procedures that have been demonstrated. This application step is used to help the learners understand the content more clearly and develop a degree of skill of that procedure. You know, without this application step a demonstration, no matter how good it was, how skillfully it was presented, are gonna gonna fail to have a significant impact on the student learning. Generally, a follow-up consists of assigning the work to the learners. You just did the knife cuts, now you say, okay, everybody, go grab some carrots and start practicing Julienne, a Batonet, And then you walk around, you correct any errors and provide supplemental instructions on an individual basis through supervision and coaching. Because some are going to need more, some are going to need less. Some just need positive reinforcement. That's it. You're doing great. This instructional step should be carried out carefully and thoroughly. No learner should be allowed to practice incorrect methods that lead to bad habits. So we need to be there to grab those. Oh, let's stop that. In addition, it is psychologically sound to have learners succeed from the beginning because if not press frustration will set in, the students may give up. So we need to find who's struggling and go over there and help them and make them successful. So they'll be like, yeah, I can do this. And when giving individual instructions to a learner, care should be first taken to be sure the learner understands the procedure. They may be, they may be doing it wrong because they understood it wrong. So you want to maybe... Talk to them. Try to identify the errors while observing them. So go ahead, do it. Let me see what you're doing here. And then watch and see if we can identify where that error is. Or have the students explain the steps back to you to check for proper understanding. Okay, so what are you going to do? You do this, 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 and see if they make sure that they have the procedure straight and the sequence correct in their mind. So we need to find that out. In addition, it's a better strategy to direct a learner's attention to an error while leaving the tools and equipment in the student's hands. The learners can then apply the new or the altered information correctly and practice the mental, physical steps that lead to the skill in performing that procedure. Too often, we want to take away the tools and do the task ourselves to show how it's done. Like, okay, no, you're doing it wrong. Give me that knife. Let me show you how it's done. And then we do it. But that's not good. We need the student to do it. And you say, okay, stop right there. I want you to do this. And we can show them like, oh, you want me to show you again? We can show it to them, but we don't want to do it for them. We want them to do it. Remember, the student needs to do it, do the work, do the learning, not us. We're already the experts at us. They need to go through that struggling and figure it out for themselves, like riding a bike. We can't get on the bike and drive it around and show them. We need to keep them on the bike, give them a push, tell them to you know, adjust whatever they need to do, but keep them at, on the task. And though it's important for learners to feel a measure of success early in the learning process, the student must understand and realize that consistent performance at a high level requires first correct procedures, and then with a substantial amount of practice, it takes time. Learners must be willing to repeat the performance numerous times to make that mental-physical association that is so essential to achieving a high level of skill. Now, practice, I understand during lab times is often not enough. And one thing that's worked for my students in the past is to offer open labs that are available for students who want additional practice and is a great idea to, you could implement if possible. I call it tutoring in the labs. We have tutoring for academics. Let's have it for tutoring for the skills. Say for knife cuts, it's great. You know, just pick up a 50 pound bag of carrots, an extra hour or two, have an open lab, let them know the days and times I'm available. If you want to come in, they can get additional instruction and they can work on the skills themselves. You can do this for sauce making, you can do this for you know, whatever they need to learn. You could have that set up them so they can have it. So in summary, demonstration is the major teaching method used when objectives require the development of a high degree of motor skill. And as teachers, we should keep the following key points in mind when planning demonstrations to facilitate the skill development. One, learners must know the steps of the procedures to be followed in the necessary physical motions to perform. Two, students should understand the purpose of each step and the relationship among steps that determine the sequence. Three, learners should be guided through an initial performance correctly and successfully. This is the follow-up. And lastly, students must practice the steps until the mental-physical connection becomes automatic. It's important to remember that doing something skillfully means doing something in an efficient and effective manner. Therefore, it's important that instructors carefully analyze the steps involved in the process so that learners can learn the movements that are necessary for efficient and effective performance. When skill development is an objective of instruction, a substantial amount of practice under supervision is necessary. Because practice without supervision is just wasteful when the proper movements are not being made. And as a result, we just talked about it, practice can lead to the development of bad habits. For example, think about dicing an onion. We teach them the correct way, but it's a little bit hard. They'd rather just chop it all up, but it comes out with all different size pieces, it makes them cry, it cuts up the the onion the incorrect way. So it's good to have that proper procedure shown first and then give them time to practice it correctly so it becomes ingrained and it becomes what they normally would go to. Lastly, many instructors discover That the demonstration method is one of the most rewarding types of instruction. And that's because of the feeling of satisfaction that we get when the students of ours demonstrate through their performance what they have learned during that application step. And that's direct proof that the instruction we've given has been effective and that the students or the learners have profited from the process that we provided to them. Okay, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Chef Educator. Till we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.